please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to take out your smartphone. And on your smartphone, if you have an iPhone, go to the App Store. If you have a Google phone, go to the Google Store. If you have an Android, I want you to go to the Android market. And I want you to type in these three letters. Are you ready? E-S-V. If you don't have a Bible, get out your smartphone and type in the letters E-S-V. Edward Sam Victor. It's not the Edward Sam Victor Bible, but it's, it's actually the English Standard Version Bible. But type in those three letters, E. ESV, and then put the word Bible after it, and then you're going to find the ESV Bible on the App Store, and that's actually how you make your smartphone smart, is put the Bible on your phone. Uh, your, your phone is dumb until you put the Bible on it, and that's how you make your phone smart. So put the Bible on it. If you don't have a Bible, put it on your phone, make your phone smart, and turn with me or click on the button. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 8, beginning... In verse number one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us from it. We ask these things in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Please be seated. Three things, four things that I believe that God tells us in his word here in Romans chapter 8 about how it is that we are in Jesus Christ. Number one, we are eternally secure. We are eternally secure. Multiple times in these 11 verses that we just read, Paul uses the prepositional phrase in Jesus, in Christ, in him. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. We are not condemned when we're in Jesus. What does it mean to be in Jesus Christ? When you're in something, it means you're a part of that thing. If you're in a game, that means you're a part of the game. Now, the preposition in and the preposition at are two completely different things. You can be at a game and not in a game. You can be at a game and be a spectator and not be participating in that game. You can physically be at a church and not necessarily be in a church. You realize that you can be at a church and not be in a church. 
You can be at Christ and not in Christ. When you're physically, when you're at something, you may be there physically, but not necessarily a part of it. There are those who claim that, that they're a part of the church, that they claim to be a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Many, and I mean many people, believe that Christianity is simply a choice that you make. You're born and baptized as a child into the church, thus you're a Christian. But, dear friend, that's not at all what Jesus says. Jesus tells us that salvation comes from being born again. In John chapter 3, we meet a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a religious leader. He was a preacher. He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what must a man do to be saved? And Jesus said, you must be born of water and of spirit. What does that mean? You must be born of water and of spirit. Well, 100% of us have been born of water. Have you ever heard of a pregnant woman's water breaking? Okay, if you are born physically, you have been born of water. Everyone here been born? Anyone here not been born? Uh, <laughs> we've all been born of water. And so when Jesus is teaching this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is following along. Yep, yeah, I got that one right, Jesus. I've been born, got it. We're, we're scoring 100% right now. We're acing this test. We've been physically born. Hallelujah, I've got it. But Jesus said it's not enough to be physically born. He said it's not enough to be born of water, to be born of your mother. You must also be born again. It's not enough to physically be born. You must be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. You see, when you're born again, God places his Holy Spirit in you. Throughout the New Testament, it's called, he's called the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ. He places him in you, which causes you to become alive in him. Joining the church, being baptized, doing good works, none of these things can make that which is dead come to life. Only the Spirit can bring resurrection to your life. Only coming to the Lord in, in repentance and sorrow and brokenness over the law that, in fact, all of us have broken. And then a full reliance on him and trusting in his forgiveness. This is how someone is placed in Jesus. You see, it's a relationship. It's not simply enough to be around Christ or around his people or around his bride called the church. It's not enough to be at it. We must be in him. You see, he says, in Christ, in Jesus, in him. It's a relationship. And what God offers to us is originally was offered to Adam before sin. What was offered? Well, a relationship with God, a relationship, a perfect relationship with God. And, and Adam had that, but then when he fell in sin, it marred that relationship with God. But Jesus' blood and his sacrifice made it all right. Some here today have been relying upon good works or deeds or membership or something else for your salvation. But the only way to be in Christ is through his blood. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. 
And listen to what Paul says about those who are in Jesus. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, There is therefore now no condemnation. Whoa! That's awesome! Our little two-year-old boy, Elijah, he doesn't say many words, but you know what he's saying now? Everything he sees, he points at and says, Daddy, that's awesome. Daddy, that's awesome. I don't know where he learned it. But he says that everything is awesome now. Church, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ is awesome. We are no longer condemned. To be condemned means to be found guilty of breaking the law. If you break a law of the government and you stand before the judge, the judge will sentence you to whatever it is that you committed. If you committed murder, he may sentence you to death. He's going to sentence you to prison. He's going to sentence you to jail. Maybe he sentences you, maybe you do a lesser crime and he sentences you to community service. Whatever that sentence is, you see what has happened is that you are condemned because you broke the law. Condemnation always has consequence. But what we're told here is that when you're in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says those in Jesus are no longer condemned. There's no longer any condemnation. Once you're in Christ, you'll never be condemned by the law again. Here's a truth that we must understand. I know that Aloma, the one thing I love about Aloma is that we are from many different walks of life, many different denominations, and, 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 and people have, make up our body, and I love that. I love that about Aloma. But I, I, I want to clarify a teaching that, that maybe you were raised under. There are some churches that teach that you can lose your salvation. That when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that when you sin, you have to get re-saved. Have you ever heard this before? When you sin or when you mess up, you have to be saved over and over and over. And really what that is doing is it's cheapening the cross. It's saying that the crucifixion of Jesus was not enough to cover over all of your sins, only one at a time. So you have to be saved over and over and over again. Now, I could spend the whole message talking about this one thing. We only have a short amount of time because we have so many things we have to cover. So I want you to write down in your notes these verses, and I want you to read them when you get home. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me quote them to you right now. What Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In him, or in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, you were then marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is your deposit, who is your guarantee, who is your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. So what he's saying in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is that when you heard the truth, when you repented of your sins, you asked Christ to come in you, you are now in Jesus, Romans 8, he has placed within you his Holy Spirit. And when he places his Holy Spirit in you, there is nothing you can do because it is sealed. He is your deposit. He is your guarantee. Let me speak about this in a physical sense. Is there anything you can do to stop being the son or daughter of your father? Not one thing. You can move halfway around the world, but he's still going to be your dad. In the same way, when you 
come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God is your father. We, we find in the New Testament, we have been grafted in. We've been adopted into his family. All of this terminology tells us that we are in his family. And there is nothing, child of God, you can do to break that seal of the Holy Spirit who is on your life. Now, again, this is not licensed to sin. This is not licensed to live however you want to. But is it not comforting to know that when he said, you are my child, we do not have to be concerned about the love of our good, good father. We know that he loves us. He cares for us. And there's nothing we can do. Nowhere we can run to escape his love and his care. Number two, we are not only eternally secure, but number two, we are internally free. He goes on in verse two to, to, to talk about, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. There's our preposition phrase again, in Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Basically, he's saying that we've been set free from the law of sin. We've been set free of the law of death by the law of the spirit. What does this mean? Again, it's what we just said, that when the spirit is in you, it has broken the bondage of your slavery to sin. You're no longer bound to the law of sin and death because he's placed his spirit in you. Therefore, the first time, for the first time in your life, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you invite him into your life and you become a Christian at that point, not when you're baptized, not when you join a church, not... When you are saved, when you repent of your sin and you invite him into your life as Lord and Savior, at that moment you are saved and at that moment you have freedom. People think that Christianity is restrictive, that, that, that Christianity is just a list of things. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's a list of rules. That's so wrong. Christianity by its definition is freedom. When you are in Christ, you experience freedom to live your life the way you were meant to live it. Before you were saved, you were, you were enslaved to sin. You didn't have a choice. You were going to sin. Maybe it was this sin or that sin or this sin, but all your choices were sin, which ultimately leads to death, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that you're saved, you have a choice internally. You can choose the flesh or you can choose the spirit. You can choose right or you can choose wrong. You can choose to obey God's command and his spirit who is living inside of you, pointing you in the direction that you should go, or you can choose flesh. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here Paul points out that we have been set free. It's a fact. Not that you may be set free, but you have been set free. You've been set free. It's an aorist active verb. That, that, that means in the Greek, an, er, an aorist verb is something that happens in the past, but it's not simply a past tense. An aorist active verb in the Greek means it happened in the past, but it has repercussions always going on. In other words, you've been set free. You were set free when you invited Jesus Christ, when you placed your faith and trust in him, and that relationship with Christ began at whatever point you were saved, at that moment, according to Romans 8, 2, at that moment, you were set internally free. You have been set free. Past tense, heiress, though, and it means that the heiress, it happened in the past, 
but it has continuing results all the way into your future. Meaning you have always been. There's nothing that you can do to put you back into the bondage in which you were in. Does that make sense? We have been set free and we are always free. Third, he says we are positionally righteous. We are positionally righteous. This is huge. It gives us yet another clue as to how we can be saved even though you and I still sin. We have to, again, approach this. This is why I keep having the TV on the, the stage, because these are concepts that seem they don't, they don't fit. It doesn't make sense. How can I not be condemned, but still yet I sin, and God always condemns sin? How is that relationship? How is it that I can be saved, but yet still sin, but God still calls me holy and his child? How does that work? And, and so we have the screen on stage for the past several weeks to, to, to diagram I don't know about you, but I learn by, by seeing, not just hearing, to, to physically touch it. That, that's how I learn. And so that's why we have the screen. In just a moment, we're, we're going to show you this. When you repented of your sin and invited Christ into your life, God made a public declaration over you that his work, that the work of his son that happened 2,000 years ago, the blood that was shed covered over your sin, and therefore you are no longer condemned. Instead, you're in Christ, and the Spirit is in you. Thus, the requirement of the law has been met. This is what he says here. He, he, he talks about in, in chapter 8 that, that the law has a requirement. Don't you hate it when you're playing a game and somebody just changes the rules in the middle of the game? And, and you're like, wait a minute. You, you can't change the rules in the middle of the game. This is not God changing the rules in the middle of the game. The, the law is still God's holy standard. It is what God demands. But what has happened is that when Jesus comes into you, the spirit of Christ comes in you, you are now made righteous. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled, not by you, but the one who is in you. You see, Jesus lived perfectly, right? Why, why is it so important that when you come to church and, and, and at Easter and Christmas, we always talk about the perfection of Jesus, that he, was never, that he never sinned. Why is that important? Because of this right here. Because you see, our, our Savior required, to, he was required to be a perfect sacrifice. He had to obey the law to the finite detail. He had to be perfect. Because if he wasn't, he would not be a perfect savior. But because he was perfect, that means that when he is in me and God looks at me, despite the fact I sin, he no longer sees my sin. He sees the blood of his son who was the perfect sacrifice. Thus, the requirement of the law has been met, has been fulfilled. Not by me, but by Christ. You see that in Chapter 8, verse 4. The requirement of the law is what Jesus had done. His righteousness is, here's a big word, imputed. That, that means his righteousness has been transferred from him. His perfection has been transferred over to you. Let me show you this on the screen. Again, this is the simple diagram that we drew last week. Remember we said that, that humans are made up basically of three parts. We're made up of body, 
or flesh, soul, and spirit. Before you came to know Jesus Christ, your body, your flesh, was your control center. You did not have a choice. You're going to choose sin. In fact, Paul goes even further and says that in your soul and your spirit and your body, you were spiritually dead. You were not alive. You were a dead man walking. You were a spiritual zombie. If you're looking for zombies in the Bible, Paul calls us zombies. We are walking dead people. Physically alive, but spiritually we are dead When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he places his Holy Spirit in you. The control center goes from being the body of the flesh to your soul, to your heart, to your mind, your psyche, your suke, where we get our word psychology, the study of the mind. This is what he says over and over and over, Romans 7, Romans 8, that this is Romans 12, this is why it's so important. If you missed last week's sermon, go back online and listen to it. It's vital for you to understand this as a believer and follower of Jesus. What you see, what you do, where you go matters because what you put in through the mind is what's going to come out. And so what happens is that now that we are saved, our soul is the command center. What he's saying is that when we sin, how foolish it is when we sin, that's when we decide that we're going to follow after the flesh, the dead man. Remember a few weeks ago we said how foolish it is that how the flesh, how a dead man still has influence over our life? This is what he's saying, how foolish it is to follow the dead man. When we follow and walk in the spirit, it's when we choose life. You see, there's freedom in Christ. You as a believer in Jesus, you can choose to follow your flesh, your sinful desires, the old man, whatever you want to use there, fill in the blank. You can do that, and and you have the opportunity, but it's always going to result in sin. But when you follow the Spirit, you're choosing life. And, and, And the law is still important. The law is still the standard by which God judges. And you and I cannot fulfill the law perfectly because we're still under the sin of Adam. Our body, though, is still dead, still influences us. Therefore, we do not have the power within ourselves to live the life we're supposed to live. Thus, thus, practically, we're going to mess up. This is our practice. This is our position. Those of you who played sports, you know the difference between practice and position. Nobody I've ever met likes practice. Who likes to go out there and for hours and hours and hours playing football, baseball, basketball, band, whatever it is that you you performed in, no one in their right mind likes practice. But what's the purpose of practice? Practice is to get us ready for the game. Practice is where you iron out all of the the problems and the situations and the issues, how to catch a ball, how to block, how to run your route, how to throw the pitch, how to swing the bat, how to to shoot the ball, how to play the, the, the right notes. All of these things are ironed out through practice. And as you practice, you get better. But the reality is no matter how many times you mess up in practice, your position remains firm. You following me? For the Christian life, 
You're going to mess up practically. Practically, life, you're going to mess up. You're going to drop the ball. You're going to play the wrong note. You're going to miss a block. You're going to throw the wrong pitch. You're going to mess up practically. But your position in Jesus Christ remains the same. Follow me. So you see, he placed his Holy Spirit in you. Therefore, you do not lose your salvation. Positionally, you are secure. And this is how, when God looks at us, despite the times when we choose to sin in our flesh, God does not see this. He looks through the Spirit. Practically, we mess up. But we are positionally righteous. We are positionally justified. But pastor, if, if the Spirit of God is living inside of me, why is it that I continue to struggle with sin? Why do I still have this struggle, that this, this war waging? That's a great question. And again, go back to last week's sermon. We addressed that, but Paul addresses it again. He says, number four, that we are personally responsible, verses 5 through 11. He says the same thing, but he says it multiple times in verses 5 through 11. What, what, what Paul is telling us here is that for the Christian, we have freedom. We have a choice to make. Going back to our three circles, in your mind, you can choose life and the spirit, or you can choose death and the flesh. Choose the spirit or choose the flesh. And again, he tells us in verses 5 through 11 how stupid, how dumb, how foolish it is that we as believers who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, how foolish it is that when we choose sin. He says in verse 9, he reminds us again that we're in Christ. We're not in the flesh. In Jesus. In the spirit. So I, I want to use the remainder of the time that, that we have here today to talk about what it means, practically what it means to be in Jesus Christ, to be in the Spirit. Simply put, the Spirit-filled life. Uh, maybe, maybe you've never heard of this terminology before, the Spirit-filled life. Do you understand that, that you can have the Spirit of Christ living in you but not be living in the Spirit? Do, do you understand that there's a, a, a distinction? You may have the Spirit in you, but you may not be living in the Spirit. What causes a person to, to, to walk in the flesh versus walking in the Spirit? One word, three letters. First letter begins with an S, last letter begins with an N. What do you think it is? It's not sun. Sin. What causes us to choose the flesh over choosing life and the spirit is sin. 100% of the time when you and I sin, we step out of the will of God and we step into our own will. We step out of walking in the spirit, we walk in the flesh. You cannot walk in the spirit and also be living in sin. Not possible. When you were saved as well, when you were saved, you received all the Holy Spirit. I hear people say all the time, I need more of the Spirit, I need more of the Spirit, I need more of the Spirit. You cannot get more than 100%. Maybe you had a high school football coach like mine, and he said, Baldwin, give me 110%. I'm like, 
how, how do I give 110% of anything? I, 100% is the max you can give. Now, I didn't say that. I said it once, and I had to run laps. 110 laps. I don't know what he was trying to tell me. But in my mind, I'm like, how do you give more than 100%? If, 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 I've, if I've got $100, how can I give you 110% of 100 All I got is 100 bucks. So you see, when you were saved, at that moment of your salvation, Christ came in you, the Spirit of God came in you, and God placed 100% of his Spirit in you. You cannot get more of the Holy Spirit. God filled you with the Spirit. And the more, the, more, uh, the more we walk with him and talk with him, you have a choice. And we realize this, don't we? In the Christian, in the Christian walk, what, what causes a Christian to, to walk in the flesh versus walking in the spirit? Sin. Here's something interesting. When you were saved, you received all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. God filled you with his spirit. I want you to understand that what God creates, he fills. What God creates, he fills. God always creates capacity first, and then he fills it. Let me show you something very interesting about creation. Take your, your Bibles, or now that you made your phones smart, take your smartphones and, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I, I want to show you something. What God creates, he always fills. In Genesis chapter 1, of course, is the story of creation. I have just a few moments here, so please give me just a little bit of your time. Genesis chapter 1 is the story of creation. And I, I always hear, why is it that God created what he created on the days he created it? And it's very interesting. It has a purpose behind it. God always, God always creates capacity first, and then he fills that which he has created capacity for. On day one, the Bible says that he created light and darkness. You say, why in the world did he create light and darkness before he created the sun and the moon and the stars? Well, I'll show you that in just a minute. On day one, he created light and darkness, and he said there was morning and night the first day. On day two, it says that he separated the waters and the firmament, the, the, the sky and the water he created on day two. On day three, it says, from the water came up and sprung forth from the water dry land. Morning and night, the third day. On day four, now we find the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly beings he created on day four, the sun and the moon and the stars. On day five, it was evening and morning, or morning and evening, the fourth day. On day five, it says that he created all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And then on day six, it says that he created all the creeping things that, 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 that walked. So he created animals. And then it culminated with his greatest creation on day six, which was whom? Man, Adam and Eve, right? So day six, he created animals and man. So what I want to show you and teach you is that God always creates capacity first and then he fills it. On day one, he created light and darkness. And then on day four, he created that which could fill the capacity that he created. On day two, he created the sky and the water. On day five, he created that which could fill the capacity he created on day two. On day three, he created the land, the dry land, the capacity. And on day six, 
He created that which could fill the capacity that he created. You don't believe me. Turn over to Genesis 2. Let me show you yet again that he creates capacity first and then he fills it. Look with me at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. He created capacity. He created the body. And then what did he do? He filled it. And what did he fill it with? He breathed the breath of life in that man. He formed man. He created capacity. And then he filled that capacity with his breath. The, the, the Hebrew word here, if you're interested in Hebrew, is the word ruach. Ruach. It, it means spirit. It means breath. If you say the word appropriately, ruach, and you hold your hand out, you feel the breath coming out. It's because it's a picture word. Ruach, it means breath. And he says right here that when he created Adam, he created a body, he created capacity, and then he filled that body with his breath. Now, the Bible says that when man sinned, God, put a, God told man, he said, now Adam, if you sin or when you sin, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely what? You'll die. Well, wait a minute. Did he physically die? I mean, Adam, Adam never physically stopped existing at that point. He, he ultimately did die. Well, what died in Adam? The breath, the ruach, that which God breathed into Adam died. And from Adam until today, and as long as the Lord tarries, we will have this problem that his breath that he breathed into Adam has died in all of us. The breath, you see, that's why we have a void. Human beings have a void within us. We, we know there is someone greater than us, someone who is out there, who, who loves us, who, who created us. That's the breath that we're missing now. Turn over to Romans and let me show you the beauty of what Paul said. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. It's the same phrase that we find in Genesis chapter 2. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life. Now, the, the New Testament is not written in Hebrew. What's it written in? In, in, in Greek. And so in Greek, he, he uses the word spirit, pneuma. Pneuma. Again, it, it, it's, it's the same word for breath. It's the same word for spirit. It, it's the exact same word for the Hebrew word ruach, pneuma, are interchangeable. When, when you're using it in Hebrew, you use the word ruach. When you use it in Greek, you use the word pneuma. If you use it in English, you use the word breath or spirit. And so what Paul is telling us right here in Romans chapter 8, is that which died in Adam because of his sin, Christ will make it come alive in us. We have this vacuum. We have this capacity. We are created to be filled. And God desperately wants to place his breath, his spirit 
in his greatest creation. And when that happens, we come alive. You say, well, that means I'm like Adam when he was originally created? No, not yet. Because sin has marred our flesh. You see, what the first Adam messed up, the second Adam fulfilled and made right. Jesus made right. One day we will be perfect, as Jesus is, when, when we separate ourselves, when, when, when our soul and our spirit separate from this body, this flesh, and we receive a new body. But until then, we're, we're in lingo, and we, we have this battle, this fight. What God creates capacity for, he always fills. I, I'm out of time, but just give me, can I have three more minutes? So, as we talk about what it means to, to, to be spirit-filled, Ephesians 5 commands the believer to be filled with the Spirit. He says, be it's not an option for the believer, be filled with the Spirit. And again, a lot of us think that to be filled with the Spirit means that I get more of the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit does not mean I get more of the Spirit. It means that the Spirit gets more of me. To be filled with the Spirit, you cannot get more than 100% of the Spirit. You've got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. To be filled with the Spirit does not mean I get more of the Spirit. It means that I yield control, more of my control, more of me to Him. To be filled with the Spirit has nothing at all with God doing anything. It has everything about me yielding my life and my control to Him. You don't believe me. He says in Ephesians 5, he says, Be not drunk with wine, which is debauchery. I, I, I wish I could, I could expound on this more. He's saying, don't be inebriated. Don't, don't be in control of anything but the Spirit. So that means to be filled with the Spirit is to yield control to the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled? How, how are we filled with the Spirit? How do I give more control of my life to Him? How can I be filled with the Spirit? How can I live the Spirit-filled life? Three things. Number one, desire that the Spirit of God works within you. Desire it. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Doctors tell us that we should drink plenty of water. In fact, you should continue always drinking water. Even when you're not very, very thirsty, you could, should constantly drink water. And what's true physically is even more true spiritually. Drink deeply of the work of the Holy Spirit. Pray, oh Lord, my heart's desire is to be filled, to please you, to walk in your way, not to walk in the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. Even God himself, God Almighty, will not fill what's already being filled. You're filling yourself. Again, the control center of the mind, go back to our three circles. When you yield control of your mind to the flesh, you're filling it with things of the flesh. God will not fill what you're already filling but he will fill everything that you yield to him. When you are filling yourself with, with sin, he will not fill, he will not live in the compartment that you are filling with sin. But when you eradicate that through the power and the blood of Jesus, and you present yourself as an empty vessel, he will fill what you yield control of, desire. Number two, determine to seek him every single day. You know why we have to be filled every day? Because we leak. 
as we walk through life, we leak. We, we, we're tempted and we, we, we fall to temptation and we sin. And every time we sin, we step out of the will of God. We step out of the spirit and into the flesh. And when we step into the flesh, we cannot be controlled by the spirit. Remember, we've already discussed this. And so I must determine daily. This is why it's so important to be in God's word every day. This is why it's so important to be praying and, and, and reading scripture. One filling is not enough. One filling is not enough. You have all the spirit, but does the spirit have all of you? Yield control, determine to walk with him every single day. And then number three, decide in his strength to choose life over death. Romans 8 tells us that you have the choice. Christian, you have the choice to choose right or wrong. And the spirit of Christ who lives in you will give you the power. Who is the only one who ever defeated 100% of temptation? His name is Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus Christ is living in you. You have the power to say no to temptation. And the way you walk in the spirit is to decide daily to say no. Now when you mess up, you start all over again. And the beauty of God is that he is not only the God of second and third chances, but over an abundance, millions times millions.